a reading from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 to 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The word of the Lord. Well, this summer I've been asking you to do a thought experiment with me, and I've been asking you to kind of play with this idea of if we were an urban monastery, what would it look like to extend hospitality to our neighbors in the city? And uh, uh, I think I've mentioned in the past few weeks, a monast- the monasticism is a renewal movement in the church that started about the 4th century when Constantine became emperor, and a number of Christians felt that the church had became too accommodated to power and fled to the desert. Uh, after a while, though, many of them realized, you know, there are no people out here, and so they uh, moved back into the cities. And uh, actually, when I went back to graduate school in history, that was, uh, had I finished my uh, PhD, that's what I wanted to write on, was urban monasticism, how these monastic communities sought the peace of the city. And a primary way that they did it was by practicing and extending hospitality. Uh, the, the book that governs monasticism, or much of it, is called St. Benedict's Rule. And uh, here's just a little bit from chapter 53. All guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ. For he himself will say, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Proper honor must be shown to all, especially to those who share our faith and to pilgrims. Once a guest has been announced, the superior and the brothers are to meet him with all the courtesy of love. All humility should be shown in addressing a guest on arrival or departure. By a bow of the head or by a complete prostration of the body, Christ is to be adored because he is indeed welcomed in them. I mean, I don't know if they did this literally, but you see what he just said? He said, when a guest comes in, get on your face and bow before them because Christ is in them. After the guests have been received, they should be invited to pray. This is distinctly Christian hospitality. Then the superior or an appointed brother will sit with them. A lot more here. Great care and concern are to be shown in receiving poor people and pilgrims, because in them, more particularly, Christ is received. Our very awe of the rich guarantees them special respect. And if you've ever been to a monastery, you've probably experienced this. Uh, last April, when I was out at Christ in the Desert, I got there late to dinner one night. I, don't try, I tried to be respectful, but I, I was late. And to my embarrassment, the entire community of monks stopped and let me go first. It's just inborn in the way that they approach the guests and the outsider. Now, Benedict didn't think this up. Um, this, this belief in hospitality as a way of relating to our neighbor uh, is rooted in Scripture. And so this summer, we're trying to go back and recapture this vision for biblical hospitality. And, and, and I had this image come up in, in prayer tonight about what I hope we're doing. I, w- I was in Rome once, and I was taking a tour of a church. And the church was okay, but then they took us down to the basement, and then they took us beneath the basement where they realized that there was a church underneath the church. And it was an incredible church from like 
the second century and had been covered up with another one. And I, I kind of hope that's what we're doing here uh, this summer is excavating the depths, excavating kind of what hospitality really is back before it got covered up with the hospitality industry or, or, or cookies or casseroles or whatever you think of when you think of hospitality. There's something profound and robust and radical about biblical hospitality that we're, we're trying to, to get to here. And, and last week we looked at Genesis 18. That's the first main text on hospitality when Abraham welcomes the guests. And then this verse in Leviticus is a, a second major aspect of, of the Bible's teaching on hospitality. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you won't do him wrong. You'll treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Hebrew word for stranger is ger, well, doesn't matter. It's ger, and it's used 92 times in the Old Testament, and if you want to do a kind of a word study on this, it is astounding how often the biblical writers tell Israel to welcome the stranger. I would say it is one of, if not the primary way that Israel is to be known as the people of God is by the way that she treats the strangers in her midst. And as you recall, this is the book of Leviticus, so they're preparing to go into the promised land. When they get there, there will be other nations there. Uh, Some of them will remain after they go in. There are many nations all around uh, Israel. And so it was a very common thing, often due due to uh, uh, famine or war, to have people from other countries and cultures living with you, living, uh, kind of make an existence out on the edge of the property and, and things like this. And so one of the main ways the people of God are to be in the world and to witness to the glory and kindness of God is by the way that they care for the girl, the way that they care for the stranger. Uh, sometimes it's translated foreigner or alien. Tim Keller, in his book on justice, the Presbyterian pastor and writer, he says that the best translation for our context today would be immigrant because these are people from other countries that have made their way for a variety of reasons into the, 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 the society. And just a few of the verses, let me just go quickly. We could spend all day on this, but just a few. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for those, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you've made and you've brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. 
And I forgot to put verse 7 on there. He says, because you failed to care for the stranger. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. And Ezekiel's saying, this is why I'm disciplining you, Israel, because you're not caring for the sojourner. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And those are five of about 50 texts from the Pentateuch that we could, uh, or the Old Testament that we could read on this. So, Biblical hospitality begins in this context. The people of Israel are a society living under God in a land where there are many people from other cultures, uh, other countries. It would not have been easy for them to always, or rather, it would have been more easy for them to identify them than it is today. But they are to be known for their hospitality to the immigrant. So, Before we kind of rush on past that, and and I'm not going to get involved with immigration policy today, it's too easy to go there and forget about right now. This is really important. This is not just kind of a minor theme in the Bible. The Bible says that God's people are known by how they provide hospitality to the stranger, to the immigrant, to the foreigner in their land. And so I encourage you to be prayerful about what that means for you, about where you might encounter a foreigner, an immigrant in your own life, how you might care for them, love them, and maybe even how we might do that as a church. Now, I think it's fair to think a little more broadly about this. Um, clearly, that's the primary application, is about the way the church treats immigrants. But a lot of us feel like strangers in this society. Uh, many, perhaps, feel like strangers in this room. I think we all probably know there have been some tragic deaths this week. Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain. And there's been a lot of uh, a comment uh, about what is happening, why the suicide rates risen as high as 25%. Um, and one of the essays that I thought was particularly helpful was by uh, Andrew Solomon, um, who's written a very powerful book on depression. I just wanted to read a, a few lines from it. Suicide is on the rise nationwide. It claims more American lives each, the, each year than automobile accidents. It has gone up 25% in the past two decades with increases in almost every state. It's now one of the top 10 causes of death in the country, one of the top three for adolescents. What explanation can there be for this catastrophic escalation? The answers swirl around like a dust cloud. Opioid dependency drives self-annihilation. 
young people everywhere perceive that the stakes are higher and also that they are binary. You'll win in life or you'll lose. Kids are putting more pressure and stress on themselves and have a lot more anxiety. The school shootings undermine a sense of safety. Young people who are already anxious have their anxiety validated by the news from Parkland or Santa Fe. Modernity is alienating, and it has been alienating for a great while. Look at an Edward Hopper painting if you think this post-industrial misery has come about only since the Internet. Isolation is another significant suicide risk. And I thought this was the most powerful part of the article. People who believe that no one will miss them have little to stand between them and the final act. As someone who has written and spoken about depression, I have, and by the way, his um, TED Talk on depression is, is, is brilliant. And I'd encourage, if that's something you're wrestling with, to, to watch it. As someone who's written about depression, I receive frequent letters from people grappling with the condition. And what is most striking to me is how alone many of them are. I hear from people who wake up, eat breakfast, go to a job at which they interact with a machine all day, pick up food on the way home, eat in front of a television, and go to bed. These people are so alone that they are effectively invisible to the rest of us. We don't get to interact with them enough to see their misery. And many describe suicidal feelings. There's another factor that should not be underestimated. On a national stage, we've seen an embrace of prejudice and tolerance, and that affects the mood of all citizens. We feel both our own anguish in the world's. There's a dearth of empathy, even of kindness in the national conversation, and those deficits turn ordinary neurosis into actionable despair. So we are living in a day where many people feel isolated and alone and cut off from love, from warmth, from community. And so one of the ways the church is to witness in a culture like this is to practice hospitality, to be a community where someone can find love when they feel that way. Now, one of the things that I think the Lord assumes in verse 33 when he says, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. I, I think he's assuming a basic aspect of human nature that's not very fun to talk about. And we all know it. If you've been through seventh grade, you know it. We hate people who are different. And we hurt them. It just seems to be ingrown in human nature. He says, you don't do them wrong. In other words, I know what's going to happen. You guys are going to be getting along with your life, and these strangers are going to come in, and you're going to want to hurt them because you're going to be afraid, and you're going to feel threatened. Don't, don't do that. Who's the stranger in your life? You know, last week we talked about how, how easy it is to be overwhelmed with all the needs, even on Market Square. And I encourage you, as we go through this series, could, could, you, could you ask the Lord, who are one or two or three strangers, one or two or three people in your life that God is calling you to 
extend hospitality to. I went around this week and, and I, I asked a few people, what, what do you think, who do you think are the strangers in our society, the strangers that are sojourning with us either in our church or our city or our community? Some of the answers were uh, you know, not what you'd you know, be surprised about. Um, uh, older people, very isolating often to be aging in this society that celebrates youth. Um, gay people, disabled people, black and brown and red and yellow people. Those are some of the names that came up. But I, I was surprised. Some people said some things that I, I didn't expect. Uh, I think I already mentioned a, a single person in our church said, well, I, I feel that way when I come in. Um, and, a, and a middle-aged uh, white guy said, you know, I'm not, I'm not supposed to say this because we have all the power, but I feel this way a lot. It was interesting, so the reading I did this week, that the, the largest group of people killing themselves in our society right now, middle-aged white men. Something's going on there, and I don't know what it is. So who's your stranger? Who is it for you? You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. In other words, just like they're one of you. And honestly, I don't know how that would have worked because Israel was so distinctive around the Torah and the covenant and temple worship and and food laws and I don't know exactly what that would have meant because the Moabite or the Jebusite or the Amorite wouldn't have practiced those food laws. Like maybe it had something more to do with respect or something like that. But I think what we're seeing here is maybe for one of the first times is a hint about what later we could call a Trinitarian vision of community. That because human beings are made in the image of God and the image of God is triune, interdependent, and interconnected, the human community is therefore interdependent and interconnected. We're all together. I think that's a bit of what he's talking about there. And you shall love him as yourself. (laughs) Again, think of who your stranger is. Uh, You know, it may be an immigrant family from Congo that God's put in your path. It may be. For us, something really shifted last week. And many of you have been praying about this. Sandy's dad is 84. He has neuropathy. Uh, Gradually, he's lost all feeling and and a lot of his body in a wheelchair, and uh, his, uh, his wife is, 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 is struggling as well, and they live down in the Gulf Coast. And for 10 years, we've been trying to get them to come up here. And, uh, it's been very hard to kind of care as they've been nine hours away. My daughter just moved, noticed a house went up a block away. Bryden called Grandpa, and make a long story short, Grandpa and Grandma are moving now. <laughs> they bought the house. <laughs> and, uh, you know, part of me is like, wow, we've been praying for this for 10 years. And part of me is like, oh, wow. <laughs> and one of the things I was thinking about today is, I wonder what it's like to be a, a former vice president of a major American company who can't walk anymore. 
He can't eat anymore. He can't feed himself. Uh, I wonder if I were him, what would I need in that situation? I think that's what he means when he says, love the stranger as yourself. It's just, what, what would I need if I, if I were in that person's shoes? And then he says, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And of course, they were. They had been strangers in Egypt and actually enslaved in, in Egypt. Now, why does he bring that up? Well, I think the basic idea is that you know what it's like. You've been in exile. You've been a foreigner. You've been mistreated. So now be kind to those who are in your house. There's something else I think that might, at least this is just what came up when I, when I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't quite know how to explain this, but in my experience, every human being at some level is the stranger. I mean, I know the way that we're kind of presenting the passage today is like, okay, there's all these people over here who've got it together, they've got community. Frank over there, he's a stranger. Go get him, bring him in. And, okay, maybe that's true in some cases. But here's the other side of it, and I don't know how to play out this tension, but the other side of it is every human being I know feels alone in the world. I suspect that uh, Mr. Bourdain... And Mrs. Spade, I don't know them. I haven't read their suicide notes. If there were one, I suspect, even though they're some of the most successful people in the world, I think they were strangers. And this is sort of the tragic irony of some of this. Is, is in my experience, sometimes the wealthiest, most powerful, popular people in the society are also the loneliest. It can, it can be a curse to be the best. And so here's where I'm, where I'm going with this. I think one way we could think about hospitality is that we're a community of strangers who've experienced the welcoming from Christ. And now we extend that grace to the stranger in our midst. As opposed to, we've all got it going on over here. We'll, we'll, we'll go make a place. And here's where it plays out real practically. And, and this is where I get a, a little frustrated as a pastor. Many times I sense that people come into a Christian community as consumers. And they are looking for the shopping center, the spiritual mall, that will give them the most products at the least price with the easiest convenience. And then when the church doesn't come through, they go shop somewhere else. And the problem is, is if everybody is coming in empty and we're all waiting for the other person to meet our needs, nobody's needs get met. I mean, some writer called it a two-tick, no-dog relationship. You know, <laughs> if we're all just kind of... But if you come into this community 
yes, you feel alone too. You come into this community and you say, actually, I'm going to reach out. I've, I've been loved by God. I've been welcomed by Christ. I'm going to reach out to a handful of other people and I'm going to love them. I'm going to welcome them, even though maybe I feel kind of lonely myself. Here's the divine paradox. That's the person that winds up feeling more loved than connected. The person that tries to consume community and walks in and out of communities waiting for someone to love them often feels the most isolated. Well, let's just finish up real quickly here. Um, Here's something I'd ask you to consider for the fall. I, I would love it if one or two of you would start a new small group and that you would this summer look around the room, see who is a stranger, see who is sojourning with you, and welcome them in. Would you consider that?